0: We will now have our final message today by Curtis Whitley entitled A Father of Compassion. Well, good afternoon. It's wonderful to see everyone on this wonderful, beautiful Sabbath day, and so as Owen just uh, pointed out the title of my message today is a compa- uh, Father of Compassion. And so most of you guys can probably uh, maybe recognize or maybe uh, realize why I've titled my message this uh, today. It's Father's Day weekend. And so uh, kind of was led just by my heart this week to kind of take a break from the series that I started on 1 Thessalonians. Uh, on persevering hope and talk a little bit about uh, our compassionate father because we have been blessed with a God that's not just almighty that's not just all powerful all wise all knowing but we have a father that's compassionate compassionate to every one of us we can just think back to our life and everything that's happened. and We can see the compassion of God. The, the mere fact that He has included us in His plans demonstrates His compassion. So seeing that this is Father's Day weekend, I was thinking about the idea of Father's Day. What we do as a, a country, uh, what we do... Uh, and and I'm, I'm honestly not completely sure if it's something that is beyond the United States. Uh, but we annually recognize fathers. We do the same with mothers, and we had that just a few weeks ago or about a month ago. And so I was thinking about just how blessed we are to have a compassionate father. Now, I'm a, I still consider myself a, a novice father myself. I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a one-year-old, and many of you probably see them running around here. And so I was just thinking about the idea of fatherhood. I can tell you right now, there's a lot of things that I still really, really, really struggle at in being a father. And many of you are fathers yourself, and you could probably understand where I'm coming from. Some of you aren't fathers. And that's totally okay, because that's not what this message is about. It's not about how to be a good dad or a good father or anything like that. Really, the focus is, is on something that we all have in common, and that is our Heavenly Father. Because no matter who we are, whether or not we, we grew up with a father, whether we, we you know, uh, you know, know who our father is or not, we all have one thing in common, we have a Heavenly Father. And I recognize that sometimes people, you know, they come from different walks of life, right? They don't, they don't grow up in the same situation that maybe we got to grow up, grow up in. Or if you are not a father, you know, you might not completely understand some of these things. Because, or you, you don't think you do. But I, I think that you can relate. And, and I just want to assure you that this message is for everyone in here. Mothers, fathers, all of us. Because we all have this one thing in common. That is, a compassionate father. And so I was was thinking about, what is it that makes a good father? What constitutes a a good dad? And so I just wrote down some things, and I was thinking that, you know, all of us would probably agree with every one of these points. So we think of what a good father is, we think of someone who's caring, right? A caring father, someone who loves us, loves their children. We also think, and I'll just even say, this would apply just as well to mothers. It's, not, it's kind of a universal, some of these are universal principles. But something else that we think of when we think of maybe a good father or a good parent is someone that's encouraging. We're encouraging to our children. We want what's best for our children. We want our, our children to develop, develop rightly and correctly. Another trait that you could consider to be a, a good trait of a father or a good father is, protective you know parents fathers we we have kind of a charge to to protect our children to make sure that they stay safe not just physically but also in other areas as well socially emotionally we think of maybe a father someone being a you know of course we might think like this when we're really young not think like this when we're in the adolescent years, but we think of fathers as being someone who's wise, right? Someone who we can go to for advice. If some, you know, there's, there's an old story about how, like, you know, whenever you're young or your children are young, they, they, they think that you know everything in the world. They think that you are amazing just because you know how to tie your shoes. And then they get to be 13, 14, 15 years old, and it's the exact opposite. You don't know anything, right? Okay. And I kind of deal with some of that myself, not because I have an adolescent child, but because I work in public education, so I'm working with adolescents every day. And so I'm the adult. I'm kind of like a, you know, a parent in their mind. You know, oh, you're just like my mom and dad. You, you, you think you know everything. You don't know anything. Of course, I can't say anything myself because I was there once in time. I had that same attitude in some ways, that I had it all figured out, right, that I knew, I knew everything. Okay? Unfortunately, I got some really, well, fortunately, I got some good advice that I I think took to heart, uh, even though it took some struggling. I was told one time that I either humble myself or the world will do it for me. And that's true. We think of a father, a good father, a characteristic as as, as someone who's patient or long-suffering. And let me tell you, being a parent, you've got to be patient, right? I mean, it's not, they don't just come out and they're, you know, well-behaving and perfect and and, and get everything perfectly at the beginning at all. And and I I tell you this, I I can think that myself, my parents have to be patient with me still. As a 34-year-old male, man, we think of a good father as someone who's compassionate. Someone who loves their children. And their compassion is driven by their love. And results in them being forgiving. Forgiving. And that's what I think all of these traits we would say that these are characteristics of a good parent, of a good mother, of a good father. And we would probably all agree because the Bible speaks to it over and over and over again. That our father in heaven exhibits all of these characteristics. I want to put up, a, if Brian would, I want to put up just kind of a, a little illustration to kind of, uh, I guess, I, I'm not going to take credit for this because I did not come up with this illustration, I did modify it a little bit, uh, but just to kind of illustrate I, and get our minds thinking about what God has done for us and, our, and what, the, the compassion that he has for us, I'd like to put up a, a picture that I gave to Brian, I don't know if he is ready for it yet. Anyway, the picture is two different images. Two different images of the same thing. They're two different images of the same thing that we're all really familiar with. If, anyways, I'll just go ahead. There, it, it, it's supposed to be two different pictures of $100 bills. So just imagine in your head that you have a fresh $100 bill and that $100 bill looks clean it's crisp, no wrinkles whatsoever the writing or the, 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 the images on it are completely crisp you can see everything almost perfectly almost like it just came right off of the printing press but the other image is an image of another $100 bill. And that $100 bill is crimpled. It's in a wad. It's got dirt all over it. And so my question to you is, is that if you had a chance to have one of those $100 bills, which one would you take? Probably the one that's crisp, Right? The one that doesn't have dirt on it, the one that's clean. I mean, we look at a $100 bill on one side that's perfect, crisp, clean, no dirt on it, almost like right off the printing press, but another one that's completely crumpled, got dirt all over it. And we would, as humans, probably think, well, I want the crisp one. But the question we have to ask ourselves, which one's more valuable? Is there any difference in the value between the two? There's not, is there? And so the reason I was bringing this illustration out today is because I want us just to think about what God has done in this world, right? He created the universe. He's created every one of us. We know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, as Genesis, the first chapter, verse 1 tells us. And then we go down to verse 26, and it says, Then God said, Let us make man... In our image, according to our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. And so we are created in the image of the sovereign God of all the universe. We're the only thing in creation... That was created after the likeness of the sovereign God of all of the universe. And So here you have the two different $100 bills. The crisp one right here on the left. And the perfect or the, the wadded up one. And of course it's just an image. But just imagine it being dirty. And we've seen many dollar bills, right? They can get old. They can be used over and over again. And worn and dirt on them. Maybe someone washed them in the washing machine which doesn't make them look cleaner, makes them just look older and more dingy, right? Maybe someone has a wallet, and that wallet, and if you have cheap wallets like I do, you start getting sweaty or things like that, and the, the dye on the wallet starts to wear off onto the, onto the money or to the you know, any paper that you have in your wallet. Which one's worth more? Well, and humanly, we think, well, I want the one that's more crisp. But both of them have the same value. And my illustration, my analogy is simple. God created us in His own image. He created us, He created human beings, and His, His creation's perfect. There wasn't any problem with His creation. It was humans that caused the problem, right? And so all of us started out like this $100 bill... But through life, through our own failures, through our own sin, we started to get a little dirty. We started to get a little wrinkled. We started to get a little faded. We stopped maybe resembling what Genesis 1 verse 26 says about us. That we were made in the image of God. We stopped resembling that image and that likeness and started resembling darkness. This goes for everyone. This is just a a theological point that the Bible makes. And we became more like that crumpled up, dirty, faded $100 bill. But the difference there's, but there's one thing that's for sure. There's one thing that we know about. And that is, in God's eyes, despite us losing some of that likeness as far as maybe the way we act, maybe the way we think, maybe the way that we behave, our value to Him was still just as valuable as that crisp, perfect $100 bill. Romans, the fifth chapter. I didn't give this to, well, I think I actually did give this to Brian. If we were to turn to Romans, the fifth chapter. There's a beautiful verse. I had it saved here and I just lost it. Romans, the fifth chapter, verse 8. Let's just read what that says. Romans, the fifth chapter, verse 8 says, But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, God didn't come and send His Son for a bunch of individuals that were perfect. He didn't send His Son for individuals that were crisp. That perfectly resembled His nature. That perfectly resembled His likeness. It's the exact opposite. He came for the individuals that were like that crippled up $100 bill. Faded, dirty. And so as we go through this message today, I just want to look at, it's kind of a parable day. As Steve brought out a a parable, I'm going to bring out another parable. Actually, in the same book, in Matthew, the 18th chapter, I want us to turn. And I want to pick it up in verse 21. Because there's a beautiful analogy that, that, that Jesus gives... That demonstrates to us the compassion that God had for every one of us. Matthew the 18, verse 21. Peter comes to Him, to Jesus, and says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now we might think that's a strange question. But it's not in the context of the day. Because people in this time within this Judaism that the people lived among, there was actually an answer for this question. There was an actual number that was taught. Jesus says, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Then Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, in the context of this passage, or these passages, follows the story of, Of the offended brother and our Savior's instructions on how to bring about reconciliation between people. Maybe someone who has wronged someone else. About bringing them to the church. Of kind of the steps that we're supposed to take when something like this happens. And this this discussion that happened right before this passage that we just read naturally prompted Peter to ask that question. Oh yeah... You know that thing that we've always learned about, about how much we should forgive our people who, for, who have wronged us? How many times do you say we should, we should forgive someone? Because in Peter's mind, he knew the teaching of the day. You see, in Judaism in this time, it said that a person can still be considered forgiving if they forgive someone up to three times. They actually get this from the book of Amos and some of the Jewish traditions where Israel's enemies were forgiven up to three times in certain instances. So there was an actual teaching in Jesus' day in, within Judaism about how you were to approach the idea of forgiveness. So if someone wronged you the same way, after the third time, you were no longer obligated to forgive them for it. And so Peter's asking the question, well, you know, this is why I've always learned, this is why I've always thought about, what do you say, Jesus? Peter most likely thought, that, hey, you know, Jesus, you're, you're not like the rest of them. You seem to be a lot more generous, a lot more forgiving. So we've always been taught three times. Peter's probably thinking to himself, hey, I'm going to be kind of like Jesus. I'm going to go like above what the Jews say plus one. Okay? Up to seven times. Jews say three. I'm going to do seven. So twice as m- much as the Jews plus one. And so Peter in his mind is probably thinking, I'm being like really generous. Jesus is probably going to be impressed. Now, he might not have thought that at all. He might just have been genuinely like, hey, I really want to know. And Jesus gives him this answer, not not seven times, but 70 times seven. So is Jesus actually saying, hey, forgive people. You, You got a calculator on you? You might want to write this down. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not actually giving a specific limit on how often that you should forgive someone. He's giving... An analogy of, hey, look, <laughs> you continue to forgive them. There is no limit on your forgiveness for someone who wrongs you. And so Jesus' answer was 70 times 7, an innumerable time. An innumerable number of times you forgive someone who has wronged you. And so the question I have for us is that, aren't we glad that God our Father doesn't have a set number of times That he's going to forgive us. Because I don't know about you. But there's some things that I have done. And stumbled at. More than three times. The same offense. There's some things that I've stumbled at. More than seven times. Unfortunately there's probably. My offenses go beyond. Seventy times seven probably. And all of ours do as well. And so reading on. Continuing on. Let's read the parable that jesus gets into he's given this question right how many times do i forgive someone three times like the jews say no seven right no 70 times seven there isn't a limit there's not an exact science you don't need a calculator to figure out how much god wants you to forgive someone who has wronged you so jesus goes into this parable in verse 23 jesus says therefore the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. But as he was not able to pay his master, or as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children on all that he had, and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. Verse 28, continue, continuing on. But the servant, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you, are, what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he would not... But went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what had been what had been done, they were very grieved, and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, "You wicked servant! I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you?" And his master was angry, and deliver them him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due to him. So my heavenly Father also will do to you, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Now let's just think about the debt that was amassed. Again, something that this person could not pay. If you were actually to go and look at the historical times and what uh, you know, Basically, the amounts, the talents, like as it says right here, it says 10,000 talents. I looked into this, and I'm not going to give you all the, the details. You can do that yourself, but and I'm talking in an approximations here. But this is something along the lines of $6 billion in modern currency. $6 billion. Something that this person could never repay His master, even giving up everything he had and selling it, would not have came close. This was a lot of money. And the point was, Jesus was being, you know, he was using her hyperbole. He's being exaggerate. He's exaggerating. And it's interesting because that is exactly what Jesus is getting at. All throughout the New Testament, that's exactly what we're pretty much taught. That we have amassed a debt that none of us could ever pay off. None of us. Only by the blood of Jesus Christ. The master demanded everything from the servant, including himself and his entire family, which would still not even begin to compensate for the amazing debt the servant owed. And of course, we see what took place here. That servant's compassion, he's found compassion in the master's eyes, in the master's heart, and the master forgives him of the debt. And he goes out, And he looks at people who owes him something and he doesn't follow the model that he benefited from, from his master. And God tells us, Jesus tells us right here, this is what the Father will do to you if you do the same. If you don't forgive people in your heart. This is a model that Jesus gives us. Showing us the compassion of our Father in heaven. And Jesus, of course, is included in this because it was his blood that was paid, that was used to be able to fulfill that debt that we all had accumulated. Now, we can think about this in many different levels. Fathers, we can think about this, or even parents, we can think about this with our own kids, right? Let's think about sometimes, you know, something happens. You're on the driveway. Your son throws a ball, knocks out your window. Puts a dent in your vehicle. Tears something up. Can your kids repay you for that? Probably not. Why? Think about most kids. They don't have jobs. They don't have money. Some do. They might get an allowance. But even though that window might not be $6 billion or worth 10,000 talents, they're in debt. Just $5 is something that they couldn't possibly pay off because they don't have the ability to do so. And so I think that this is a great analogy for all of us as fathers, as fellow Christians, as brethren, as individuals living in this world, that basically the sentiment is simple, that we live in a world where people will wrong us and we'll get frustrated. And it's easy to be angry and it's easy to be like that master, that first master that, that, that wanted to basically just Take that person to task. And it's easy maybe not to find compassion sometimes. Like that first master did. It's maybe it's easier to continue on like the second master. And just demand. Even though the person's begging for forgiveness. And pleading with us. Sometimes maybe it's easy just to want to continue to rail on somebody. But God and Christ through this parable has given us a model that we should follow. In the end, the unforgiving servant received the same treatment that he perpetuated on his own servant. Now, when we think about the reality, when we think that we were a crumpled up, dirty, $100 bill, and of course, this is an analogy, and that Christ still died for us when we were yet still sinners. And that that was God's son. We see the compassion that our Father in Heaven has for us. And it's a model that we should follow ourselves. Let's turn to Ephesians, the second chapter. Ephesians, the second chapter. I want to pick it up in verse 1. Ephesians, the second chapter, verse 1 says, And you He made alive. We're in that scenario right there. Every one of us followed after the lust of the flesh. And sometimes that old man still tries to creep up and get us to do the same thing again. But we know that we have the blood of Christ that has redeemed us from that. But we got to remember. We've got to remember it was the lust of the flesh. It was the sons of... It was it, it, Being a child of wrath was what got us to be that dirty, wrinkled up, Up, one hundred dollar bill. Verse four, but God, who is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And not, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We've been lifted up out of that bondage that we were in. Out of that. And placed in heavenly places. So that we could. Demonstrate the works of God. To this fallen world. These passages are a reminder. Of all of us. Where we were. At one time. All of us were in captivity to this world. We know the analogies. We know the examples. The passage tells us that we were. By nature. Children of wrath. Children of wrath. We were worthy of death. We were worthy to be put in Gehenna fire. As Jesus sometimes talks about. Which is trash. Worthless. But we weren't worthless. In God's eyes we weren't worthless. We were actually. There was something about us. And what it was about us. Is that we were his creatures. His creation. And he loves us. And all of this we must most importantly remember. How. This was made possible through Jesus Christ. Let's go to John the first chapter. John the first chapter. Very, very famous passage. We've read this several times. Deep theological meaning. But I want to get at something that sometimes we, we don't necessarily always think about when we look at this passage. So we know that John, the fourth gospel, the latest gospel probably written... That John opens up his gospel in a very unique way. We know the synoptics, the ones that are Matthew, uh, Mark and Luke. We know that they're very similar to each other. That they follow a lot of the same stories. And then you have this fourth gospel. It's very different. And John goes all the way back to the very beginning. Not just the beginning of Jesus' physical birth. But he goes back to the very beginning of time. And he uses the language of Genesis, the first chapter. And he says this in verse 1 of John 1. He says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things were made through him and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. Verse 5. Very interesting part of this passage. And the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now if you ever read John a lot and you've studied it that's a theme that Comes all throughout the book of John. The theme of light and darkness. And it's interesting. Because I want us to focus on that little thing. That we just talked about. This idea of light and darkness. Because John mentions that in this. The logos. The word. That's the Greek word for word. Logos or logos. In the logos was life. And that life was the light of man. And the light shines in the darkness. And that darkness did not comprehend it. Now, this word comprehend in the Greek, it's kind of difficult. Looking at some textual notes, for example, by the New English Translation, I was looking at how there is actually somewhat of a debate uh, on exactly how to, how to translate this word that's in the Greek that we have translated for us as comprehend. Because sometimes, some people want to say that the, the, the light didn't overcome it, okay? Okay. Uh, But most translations, like the New King James Version, as well as the NET, translates this as comprehend. And so when we think about comprehend, we think of the idea of understanding. That the darkness did not understand the light. And that's so true, if we think about that. Jesus came into a world, as it still is to this day, that had a lot of darkness to it. And Jesus himself was that light. And despite him being that light, that light was not comprehended by most people. They didn't understand what in the world Jesus was talking about. They they railed against him because he didn't follow after the patterns that they expected him to follow after as the claimed Messiah. And so the darkness did not comprehend the light did not understand the light. John 3 verse 19. You don't have to go there. It says and this is the condemnation. That the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than light. Because their deeds were evil. Their deeds were evil. Verse ch- Chapter 8 of uh, John verse 9 says. Then Jesus spoke to them again saying. I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness. But have the light of life. The light of life. And so with all of this and understanding and how I'm tying this in to the idea of a father of compassion that we have, it all starts with Jesus, right? As far as the demonstration, the outpouring, the physical manifestation of God's compassion, the centerpiece of it, is this point in history. That that logos, that that word, that Jesus came into this world to manifest that compassion that the father has for all of us through Jesus Christ at the very end or towards the end of Jesus's ministry or actually this is right before he's arrested and dragged to his execution John 16 I think I actually gave this to Brian John the chapter 16 verse 29 through 33 interesting passage we read it every year Verse 29 says, His disciples said to him, See now you are speaking plainly and using no figure of speech. Because Jesus, sometimes he would speak in a way that even his own disciples wouldn't understand. He would say things and their brains thought one way. And so it's easy for us sometimes to read the disciples and we're thinking, Man, why aren't they getting what Jesus is saying? Well, duh, John, duh, Matthew, duh. Of course this is what Jesus means. How could you misinterpret him on that? Well, we have the luxury of being able to see hindsight, be able to see all of the story at once. And so in the, in the context of the day, I think that sometimes we have to be a little bit more understanding. But he says in verse 30, Now we are sure that you know all things and have no need that anyone should question you. By this we believe that you came forth from God. And Jesus answers and says, Do you now believe? Indeed the hour is coming. Yes, Has now come. That you will be scattered. Each to his own. And will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone. Because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you. That in me. You may have peace. In the world. You will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And you might ask the question. What does this have to do with the darkness and the light? Because it's a demonstration that Jesus as He came into this world, as the Logos, as the Word, and the darkness didn't comprehend it, and the darkness might have tried to overtake it and, and blur out the light, it couldn't. Jesus overcame the world. The light overcame the darkness. So now as we have come full spectrum, we, we can harken back to that time that we accumulated our debt in the darkness of this world you see through Jesus not only is he the light of the world but he is someone who has come to show us our sins the demonstration the manifestation of God's grace on this earth is kind of twofold and one way we see the loving compassion of God the Father and what he had Jesus do. His own son for us. Well, the other side of the coin. Jesus and his manifestation. Shows us kind of a mirror. Of who we really are. Before the God of all the universe. Which that much more further. Demonstrates the compassion. That God has on me and you. Let's go to my last passage here. This is a shorter message than kind of I expected, but Romans, the 12th chapter. I want to read this. I want to leave us with this. Romans 12, verses 9 through 21. It says in verse 9 of Romans 12, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, be kindly, affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence. Serving in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continually, steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Verse 14 says, Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another and do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion, and repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, I, have, I uh, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And I chose this passage because I think it's a good reminder and what Paul's telling us to do and what not to do in light of what God has done for us. In light of the forgiveness that God has placed upon us. You know, God could have Exact his vengeance on, on us, right, for, for breaking his laws, for breaking his, his standard. All humanity. And he almost did, right, completely, in Genesis, the sixth chapter, in Noah. But he didn't, because he found compassion on someone. And he found compassion on every one of us. So the compassion that God has shown all of us is something that this world cannot understand. But if we demonstrate that compassion that God has given to us maybe, maybe we can be a contribution to that light that is Christ. Think about that. How How compassionate are we? We've been blessed with the Father that is All compassionate. How compassionate are we towards each other, towards people in the world. In this dark world we live in, God's light shines and overcomes all darkness. In light of of what God has done for us, we should remember our conduct, attitudes, and the love we are to have towards each other. Let us never forget what we have, a compassionate Father, because that's what we have. And the exceeding riches of mercy He has bestowed and continues to bestow on us. Through his son Jesus Christ. And so as this, this is a kind of an annual thing in our culture. Father's Day. Let's think about that. Father's Day is something that comes once a year. But it's something that we should always think about. That we should always have in the back of our minds. And it shouldn't just stay there. Our acknowledgement should prompt us. The acknowledgement and understanding of what God has done for us. The compassion that he's given us should always be prompting us to act and follow the model that our Father in Heaven demonstrated on us to those other people, each other within the church and others outside.